I'm so excited about our passage today. I can barely handle it. Um, okay. As a pastor, I have goals. Pastor is a silly word. <laughs> it's not an English word. It's a, a Latin word, pastor. And the Bible wasn't written in Latin, so the New Testament never uses that word, pastor. It always uses the Greek word that means shepherd. So when the Bible was translated into Latin, totally made sense to use the word pastor because, you know, pastor means shepherd in Latin. But for some reason that you and I probably will never know, English-speaking Christians somewhere, sometime, decided they'd sort of half-translate that word. So you rarely hear shepherd used as a title anymore. But that's what's in there. Shepherd. And I, I think I like shepherd better than pastor because in a way it sort of defines our role. Guiding, directing, and protecting. That's what we're asked to do. So I have goals as a shepherd. If Redeemer Church is a flock and we're grazing through the green field of God's word, I have a few fertile green valleys that I just really, really want to get to. And I'm just pressing and prodding and poking you because I really, really, really want for you to get there. I want you to see a few things in the scriptures crystal clear. I want, I want you to see them so clearly that you taste them. I want to impress them upon your imagination and upon your heart with such force that the imprint will just never go away. So two, two goals, primarily. First, I want you to know the gravity of sin. The darkness of it. The sheer wickedness of it. I want you to feel the cold horror of sin and to know that it is sin that corrupts all things and that cracks the world and that ruins all relationships and that isolates us from God. I want you to know the, about the wrath of God that will vanquish sin and any who would foster sin in their heart. And I want you to feel the terror of the wrath of God because you are that guy. I am that guy who sins and you are that guy and I am that guy who would foster sin in his heart. I want you to tremble at the specter of God's wrath against sin. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that I want you to know the grace of God that is on display in the rescue of God's people. I want you to feel the sharp relief that is the grace of God through Christ. I want you to be terrified by the wrath of God. And in that terror, I want you to behold in its full, unveiled glory the sweet mercy of God in Jesus. When you see that mercy, I want you to be struck with it. To feel the force of God's grace. I want you to gasp when you consider Christ who bore our sins, who made a way for us. I want you to feel the sharp relief of the thing. The rescue of God's people is the mighty and overwhelming and brilliant and beautiful centerpiece of all creation. And I want you to see it for what it is. 
So I'm telling you this today because our time in Samuel has largely been spent reflecting on the first thing. The gravity of sin. We've spent months talking about Eli's family. The priests of God who were architects of rebellion. They spit upon the work and worship of God. And they reduced the things of God to theft and adultery. And wrath consumed them for they were cursed by God. Cursed by God because of sin. And here we are again. Sin. It is dark and it is awful and it ruins. But the gospel is the good news about sin. The resolution. The gospel is the glory of God in the redemption of the wicked. And the story of Samuel isn't about sin. It's about hope. Hope in the Lord who would restore his people and rescue them from bondage and death by way of a great king and a coming kingdom. Our passage today is a hinge, a pivot point. It's a moment in the story of Samuel that pivots from the darkness of sin to the glory of rescue. From hopelessness to hope. Today we're going to taste the green grass of both valleys. Because right at the center of this passage is a beacon. A crystal clear shadow of the Messiah. And so I w- what I want to do today is to highlight aspects of this passage and to reflect as a church upon the great hope that God has given the great rescue that he's orchestrated for his people. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Verse 19. And no joke, as soon as I got up here, I just opened the Pew Bible. Not my Bible. Just opened the Pew Bible, and it was 1 Samuel 6, 19. Uh, It's on page 229. That would have been helpful to know. 229. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is the right question. So let's stop for a moment and remember where we are. For seven months, the ark of God had been moved from place to place among the Philistines. Why was it in Philistia in the first place? Because the people of Israel had spiraled into a total disregard for the things of God. The ark was literally a token for them, a good luck charm, as if they could manipulate the heavens and stir God to action with it. They bet large and they lost to the tune of 30,000 lives. And the ark was carried away. What a devastating blow for the people of God. 
But boy, oh boy, did that work out poorly for the Philistines. Every moment that the ark of God was among the Philistines, God's wrath was on display. No kidding, death and destruction in its wake. Tumors and mice everywhere. And the Philistines learn that the God of Israel is not to be trifled with. Eventually they cave and they send that thing back from whence it came. So at face value, this is a huge deal for the nation of Israel. Because the departure of the mercy seat was a picture of the wrath of God. This is the mercy seat. The place where God meets with his people despite their sins. And they watch it paraded out of the battlefield over the dead bodies of the chosen people. They watched as their only hope was stolen away. And they were wretched. Because the people of God have only one hope. Mercy. The mercy of God is the only hope of the people of God. And the ark was the tangible expression of that mercy. So to see that ark escorted back to the people of Israel was a brilliant display of hope and mercy and grace. And if you look back in verse 13, everyone in Beth Shemesh is rejoicing because of the great work of God to return to Israel despite their sin. They rejoiced over it. But in just a moment, their rejoicing is turned to mourning because 70 men are struck dead. The Lord struck them. Think about that. Directly. Directly, the Lord struck those men because they looked at the things of God. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is the right question. So I want to talk for a moment about the holiness of God. God does not abide sin. He is just and He is kind and He is good. So He cannot and He will not. The dark curse that struck the world when Adam and Eve bit into forbidden fruit is anti-God. He will not bear its presence any more than you would bear the presence of a malignant tumor in your child's body. And that's a problem for you and me because we have embraced sin. It has been our closest partner in many respects. We have used sin to bolster our bank accounts, our reputations, our social networks. Sin has been the tool by which we've indulged some of our most secretly held passions. Whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, you must consider yourself a sinner of the highest order. And God won't abide your sin. We've made ourselves enemies of our only hope because we have each of us chosen. We have chosen sin. Let me read you something by C.S. Lewis. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either, for, goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the, re, the way you react to it. 
And we have reacted the wrong way. We, each of us, have made ourselves enemies of our only hope by aligning ourselves with the rebellion which, in the end, turns all faces from the worship of God. And what we mean when we say that God is holy is that God will not stand by as all that is good and innocent and lovely is corrupted. He is too good and too kind to let sin riddle the created order unrestrained. There is only one condition in which the people of God may stand in His presence or ask Him questions or sing of His glory. They need the covering of sacrificial atonement and intercession. Covering. Like an umbrella, the people of God need a covering. They need a mediator. They need help. And look, I haven't stepped an inch outside of this passage to make these conclusions. Look one more time. Look again at that question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Listen to those words. Two questions. The second one answering the first. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one. Not any of us anyway. That's the answer. Because the next question presupposes that answer. To whom... Shall he go up away from us? Who among us can stand before this holy God? No one? Okay, where do we send him? Because we can't stand in the midst of this type of holiness. We don't stand a chance. Okay, so I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the same people who are rejoicing because God in His mercy has delivered the mercy seat back into the hands of His people. The mercy of God has returned to the people of Israel. And they get it. They get that He is their only hope. But God relates to them according to their sin unless they're under a covering. So without a covering, God's presence is devastating to them. And it must go away. Let's keep moving. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and looked up, came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So I don't want to dwell here too long, but a few things we need to point out. The people of Beth Shemesh were desperate to find a place for God's stuff to go. And notice that they have to search and find a place. And they have to anoint a guy. Why? Why not simply take it back to the tabernacle? Because the priests are dead. And for all we know, the tabernacle has been an empty wasteland for seven months. This paragraph highlights how total, how devastating was the curse of God against the house of Eli. For me, it was an abstract idea to think about God's curse against the priesthood when he let go, when he gave them up to their sin. 
I didn't quite get the totality of it until this moment. But the destruction of the house of Eli had a total and devastating effect on the people of Israel. It shut down the worship of God. And we know that because when the stuff of God returns to Israel, nobody knows how to deal with it. They arbitrarily find a home on a hill and they arbitrarily shove it in there and they arbitrarily choose a man to take care of it. This is blindness on display. Blindness to the things of God. And that's a theme that's developing here. We've just read two scenes. A spiritually blind people treating the things of God as trifles and being struck by the Lord for their sin. And a spiritually blind people desperately trying to find a place for the stuff of God that didn't incur wrath and destruction. Blindness. A people, the people of Israel are blind without a priest. They are lost without a mediator. They are broken without a covering. And a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The presence of God is wrath for those without intercession. And the people of God are hopeless without a covering. Without intercession, without mediation, without a covering, the people of Israel can only lament after the Lord. So, so let's keep reading. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. So the last two scenes, the scene of the people of Beth Shemesh struck in mourning and the scene of the people blindly searching for a place to hide the things of God Blindness, hopelessness, mourning, and lamentation. And if you didn't know any better, you might begin to believe that the story you were reading was a tragedy. But then the camera pans to Samuel. Prophecy, I think, is misunderstood. Sometimes. What's the first thing? Be honest. What's the first thing you think about when you think about prophecy? It's the future, isn't it? Like the weird chapters of Daniel or Revelation, right? <laughs> what? What did I just read? That's prophecy too. But more often in the scriptures, prophecy is the word of the Lord spoken through his representative, calling the people of God to repentance, to stop turning, to stop sinning, and to return to God. And what we just read are God's word to God's people spoken through God's prophet. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the astroth from among you and, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So in this dark moment when the people of Israel are blind and lost and without a guide, struck by the wrath of God and lamenting his distance, in this moment the Spirit of God fills the prophet of God and this rebuke is the sweetest, 
the warmest moment the people of Israel have known for years. Set aside your idols and serve the Lord only and he will deliver you. What lovely words. So the people of God needed a prophet. And God gave them a prophet. Keep reading. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Listen to Samuel's words. He says, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. I will pray for you. Gather, and I will pray for you. He doesn't say gather together and pray, although you can see they do that. And he doesn't say gather together and fast and pray and pour out water before the Lord, although you can see that their repentance involves those things. No. He says gather, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Why? Because the people of God need an intercessor. They need a priest who will pray for them, who will stand before the Lord and pray for them. They need a mediator. The reason the people of Israel were searching desperately for a place to put the ark of God, the reason they were desperately searching for a guy to tend to God's mercy seat, the reason the people were struck Look, the reason the ark of God was lost in the first place was because the people had no priest, not really. Eli and his sons had stopped interceding on behalf of the people years ago. They had no covering because they had no priest. So the people of God needed a priest, and God gave them a priest. Keep reading. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel judged the people of Israel. Don't skim over that sentence because it's important. The people haven't had a judge. The judge of Israel was the reigning authority over the people. God was king over Israel and his representative, the king's representative, was the judge of Israel. And as far as the people of Israel inhabited the promised land, they looked to the judge of Israel for instruction, for counsel, for decisions in war, for spiritual leadership. And the people of Israel haven't had true leadership in years because Eli was broken and corrupt. The people of God needed a leader and God gave them a leader. That sentence is important because it's the brushstroke, the finishing touches of a portrait that we've just been given. When Samuel prophetically calls the people to repentance and promises the deliverance of God, he is operating as the prophet of God. And when Samuel calls together the people of Israel in order to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf, he is operating as the priest of God. And when he sits down to judge the people, he is operating as their king. Prophet, priest, king. Samuel is a shadow 
of the hope of Israel, the great prophet, priest, king. They were lost and blind and broken. And then God sent one man, one man who was prophet, priest, and king. Keep reading. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Okay, so this is a key moment in the story of Samuel because as a reader, you've watched the judgment and wrath of God unleashed upon the people of Israel again and again. You've seen the people chasing after idols and you've seen corrupt priests ruining the worship of God. And so the destruction of the people of Israel, their lost battles and their bondage is expected. But now, just at this moment, we've seen the people turn to God. And their blindness and their brokenness and their hopelessness seems to resolve in this one man, this prophet, priest, king who unites them. And he calls them to repentance. And he represents them before God. And he leads them in humility. The mediator that they needed is here. The intercession that they needed is here. The leader that they were lacking is here. So really, we don't know what to expect from this moment because since the story began, all we know is that the people have been chasing after sins and idolatry and that God responds in wrath. This is a new situation. Keep reading. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. It's brilliant, isn't it? All the building conflict in this passage comes to a head when the people cry out, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. In a, mo in a, in a way, this is a moment we've been waiting for since the story of Hannah. That's the right disposition. That's the right attitude. This is the humility that the people of Israel have desperately needed. I mean, when you read those words, don't you want to shout out, yes, that's it. That's what you've been missing. Think about those words. Please, please don't stop crying out to the Lord, our God, for us. That he may save us. Guys, it's beautiful. That's the disposition of the people of God right there. Desperate for his rescue. Dependent. So we've been talking for months now about the shadow, the Christ-shaped shadow that is cast over the story of Samuel. This story, yes, is about the people of Israel. And it's about the rising kingdom and the ascension of King David. But ultimately, that's not the meaning of this story. The story of 
Samuel and all of the stories of the Old Testament are shaping for us a picture of Jesus. They're teaching us about the rescue of God. And most of the time, it takes a bit of thought to make that connection. Most of the time, the shadow is within reach, but you have to look out for it. You have to draw connections from other passages to see it sometimes. But there are some moments in the scriptures that are crystal clear. Vibrant, shining, spotlight beacons on the coming Christ. And this is one of those moments. Read it again. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. A mediator was given to rescue the people of God. A prophet, priest, king was given to intercede on their behalf. But what was needed to redeem them? What, what was ultimately necessary to reconcile God's chosen sons and daughters to wipe away their sin? The slaughter of an innocent lamb. Prophet, priest, king, and sacrifice. That's what the people need. What's brilliant about this passage is how clearly it points the Messiah. Because the point of this passage is not that Samuel is the hope of the people of Israel. In not too many chapters, Samuel dies. No. The point of this passage isn't that Samuel is the hope of the people of Israel. The point of this passage is that Jesus is the hope of the people of God. We are in sin. Broken. Blind and lost. And the armies of God's wrath are coming. Just as the Philistines are waiting at the gates. We are desperate for rescue. And God is there, ready to provide a mediator. God is there sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ, the innocent Lamb slain on our behalf, who never ceases to intercede for His people at God's right hand. So the people of Israel, surrounded by their enemies, have but one hope. The man Samuel, who is the shadow of Jesus. As prophet, he calls the people of God to repentance. As priest, he intercedes on their behalf. As judge, he leads them to the kingdom of God. And as redeemer, he sacrifices an innocent lamb. And we, the adopted sons and daughters of God, have but one hope. The God-man Jesus. As prophet, he calls us to repent from our sin, from our idolatry, and to follow him to the kingdom. As priest, he sits at the right hand of God, always interceding for his brothers and sisters. And as king, he will rescue his people from their enemies and set them in a new kingdom without suffering or pain forever and ever. Because as Redeemer, He wore their sin and bought them with His blood so they might boast His righteousness. Keep reading. 
as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So this is the same God whose wrath was poured out on the people of Israel not many months ago. 30,000 died on that day. 30,000 men fell in the face of God's wrath. And this is the same God who struck 70 men in the fields of Beth Shemesh. This is the Lord, and His holiness has not changed. And their question remains as appropriate as ever it was. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This passage just answered that question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Only one. Only one who wears the title prophet, priest, and king. Only an innocent lamb whose blood will be spilt to redeem the people of God. Only one. What changed in this story? Because when we began reading, God's wrath was poured out on a blind and lost people. 30,000 and then 70 because of the wrath of God. But at the end of this story, God is the great unstoppable champion of Israel, thundering from the heavens against the enemies of his people. What changed? A mediator was given. God's people need a mediator. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer to that question is no one. No one can stand before the Lord, this holy God. Not you or me or anybody. There is but one who can stand before the Lord, this holy God. The one he sends. The prophet, priest, and king that God himself sends to rescue his people. The people of Israel have no hope in the face of the holiness of God. None. They are wretched before him. But when a mediator is sent, when they stand before the prophet, priest, king and plead for rescue, when an innocent lamb is slaughtered to redeem a repentant people, then everything changes. The ferocity of God's wrath is transformed into the ferocity of his loving care after the intercession of a redeemer. Praise God. Look, for a brief moment, Samuel stood as a representative for the people of God. For a moment, the Christ-shaped shadow was embodied in the person of Samuel. But these things were written down for our instruction. We have, each one of us, made a great enemy of our only hope. We stand naked before the judgment of God. And he will wipe away all sin 
and all those who would chase it. You and I have but one hope. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Only Jesus. Only the prophet of God who proclaims good news to captives. Only Jesus, the Redeemer, who bore our sin that we might boast his righteousness. Only Jesus, the great high priest, who intercedes for adopted brothers and sisters at the right hand of God. And only Jesus, King of kings, who will finally and forever rescue the people of God from their enemies. I can think really of only one application to this passage. When the people of Israel understood their hopelessness, they ran to the Redeemer. When they asked the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? And when they answered that question honestly, they ran to the Redeemer. They ran to their Redeemer and they repented of their idolatry and they prayed and they fasted and they pled for rescue. They ran to the Redeemer and they were redeemed. Run to Jesus. Answer that question honestly. Ask the question. If you have to, ask it every day, twice a day, ten times a day. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And answer that question honestly. You can't. Not you. You cannot. But he can. And he's ready. So repent of your sin and run to the Redeemer. Run to the Redeemer who bears your sin. Run to Jesus and boast his righteousness. He is the prophet you've longed for. He is the priest you need. And he is the king whose reign will perpetuate forever and ever. He is your only hope. Look, if you saw the power of God on display to vanquish his enemies, and that was wrath for the people of Israel, if you saw that turn where all of a sudden the power of God is on display as grace towards his people... That you should salivate when you see that. If you want to see the power of God on display in loving care and in grace and in mercy, run to the Redeemer. Let's pray.